oh God, that we would not forget. Father, everybody here has some mountain. They have some wall they've been walking around, praying like the children of Israel, looking at the, the walls of Jericho, saying, this is impossible. There's no way. I'm just wasting my time walking around this. this, this there's got to be a better way. But we know that you instructed the children of Israel to walk. And as they walked, they saw the enormity of the wall, the enormity of the mountain. They said, we can't. And that caused them to look at you and say, God, you're the one that has to do this. I can't do that. We can't do it. We don't have the power. And I just pray, Father, that you would remind us of your faithfulness in the past, the, the things that you've, the prayers that you've answered, the way you've provided for us. And Father, I guess we'll always have some mountain or some wall that we're walking around because you want us to look at you. And I pray, God, that you'll build our confidence and build our faith. And that you would encourage us today knowing that you've never failed us. And that our trust and hope will not be in our abilities, but in your strength and your faithfulness. I pray now that you would take the living word of God and that you would use it to speak to our hearts and change us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a very violent world. Turn on the evening news, pick up a newspaper, go online. There's not a day that goes by that we do not see accounts of death killing, or murder. We see the mass shooting in Las Vegas, the terrorist truck attack in New York City, the death of innocent people at the hand of violent and depraved persons. Why is this violence always in the news? Because life is cheap? No, because life is valuable. It's valuable. Human life is so valuable that we instantly hear if it is snuffed out. A plane crash, an earthquake, a tsunami, casualties of hurricanes or tornadoes all make the news because life is a big deal. And when it is taken, innocent lives ended by violence, accident, or natural disaster, it is a very big deal. Many of you may remember the case of Terry Chavo in Florida, who was in a persistent vegetative state for over 10 years. Her husband sought to remove the feeding tube that kept her body alive to allow her to die. And the, the uproar involved the courts, the legislature, the governor overruling the courts, and ultimately the courts allowing the action to remove the feeding tube. Does anybody deserve to die? Is anyone justified in taking the law into their own hands? Is there ever a time to kill. Most of us live in nice, safe neighborhoods a distance from murder and mayhem, but for some, killing is a daily occurrence. We live in a violent world, and in America today, there's an average of one murder every seven minutes. Why? Why does that happen? How can we make sense of it? Well, as we continue to look at the Ten Commandments, God's top ten, it's about relationship. We look at what God says about taking of a human life. The first four commandments dealt with our 
relationship with God, the vertical, and the last six deal with the horizontal, our relationship with other people. And this message deals with the sixth commandment, and we're gonna take three Sundays to look at this simple commandment. The commandment, you shall not murder. This message will address the foundation of the commandment. When is killing murder and when is killing not murder? We're gonna look at the relevant contemporary issue number one. We're gonna look at uh, capital punishment. What does the Bible say about capital punishment? And then what is Jesus' expansion of this sixth commandment? What is the root cause of criminal behavior? And we're gonna look at God's forgiveness. The next message next Sunday is gonna deal with the abortion dilemma. And we're gonna hope to answer questions like who decides questions of life and death? What is our foundation for truth? Is the unborn child a human being? When does life begin? And is the taking of an unborn's life ever justified? And then the week after that, we're gonna look at war, military service, and non-resistance. Now, as we approach these issues, we need to ask what the Bible says. In all of these issues, our standards of morality, of right and wrong, are not human opinion or Gallup research polls, movies made in Hollywood, not even laws passed by US Congress upheld by the Supreme Court. Our law, our standard for faith and practice is the word of God. It's the Bible. David Kinneman of the Barner Research Group said, millions of Americans mix secular and various religious views to create a personal belief system. Americans don't mind embracing contradictions. It's hyper-individualism. They're cutting and pasting religious views from a variety of different sources, television, movies, conversations with their friends. Rather than simply embrace one particular viewpoint, what Americans are saying is, listen, I can probably put together a philosophy of life for myself that is just as accurate, just as helpful as any particular faith might provide. Basically, this is called a practice of syncretism. Grab-bag approach, little of this, little of that. Well, our understanding of right and wrong is not culture. It's the Bible, the Word of God. Not syncretistic beliefs of Americans today. It has nothing to do with politics and everything to do with righteousness. Righteousness. Well, let's start. There's a lot. There, I, your notes are, look a little longer than they normally do because I put all the scripture passages on there so that we could see all of those. And you can take it home and you can digest it a little bit because there's a lot to cover today. And uh, I want us to start with Roman numeral one, the commandment in simple form. The commandment in simple form. Exodus 20, 13, it's on page 60 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Very simple sentence. Verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. Let's start by looking at the foundation of this command. What's the background or foundation, letter A? Um, Genesis 9, 6 is the foundation. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. The one foundational principle that undergirds this commandment, what is that principle? We are made in the image of God. Now, all living creatures have a physical being or entity, but people have something more. We have body, soul, and spirit. Humans have reasoning ability. We have the ability to relate to spirit, which is God, who is spirit. So people are made in God's image. These facts, these are the facts that make human life so valuable. So valuable. In fact, not long ago, the United Notions, Nations, um, 
passed a resolution, they tried to pass a resolution that uh, they wanted to elevate the equality of all life forms, plant, animal, and physical. Um, but we don't have to care what the UN thinks about that. We are unique. We're made in the image of God. And that makes human life uniquely valuable. That is why when a human life is taken, it's a big deal. It, it makes the news. We are valuable because God placed value on each and every one of us. This was an act of God at creation. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Human beings are unique creations of God, so as such, life is irreplaceable, it's invaluable, and it's of the highest value in the entire universe. Some regard life as cheap. For some, killing is no big deal. Some will snuff out another person's life as, as quickly as stepping on a cockroach or an ant. Why is this the case? What has happened in our day that has so cheapened life? One of the main reasons life is considered cheap, that killing is no big deal, is the rejection of this biblical account of creation. The denial that God created people in his image is special, unique, and valuable. And this brings us to the topic, letter B, of the role of evolution in destroying this commandment. The role of evolution in destroying this commandment. We do not have space to examine in detail all the issues of creation versus evolution. Scholars have written volumes on this subject, but let me say this, for Bible-believing Christians, our standard for faith and practice is the Bible, the Word of God. So how is evolution, the theory, destroyed the moral imperative of you shall not murder. Well, if we reject the biblical account of creation and deny that people were made in the image of God, we believe that people are just a higher evolved species, then we lose all moral basis to condemn murder. We're just another animal. We're just higher up on the chain of evolution. What we are left with is humanism. Humanism is the worship of man. Man is the center of the universe and, and the begin all and end all. Mankind can make the rules. The end justifies the means. And that's where humanism has taken us. Now, if I make the rules, then um, I'm Norwegian, then I can say anybody of Norwegian descent um, can get a college education, get a job and do these things, but only Norwegians can do that. Because if I make the rules, I can make whatever rules I want. And we've seen the result of man-made rules. What do we see of man-made rules, not based on the value of human life? Nazi Germany and the master race, ISIS and the murder of Christians, Rwanda and the attempt to wipe out the opposition, Iraq and the subjugation of an entire people group, and the United States and slavery until the 1860s and racial prejudice that still exists today. See, evolution brings humanism and humanism makes man the God man makes the rules then it is okay to kill someone who's not in my group one of the most frightening trends that we've seen especially in the last couple of years is to define some groups of people as subhuman as subhuman somebody said that the Las Vegas shooting was okay because the people that were shot were country fans and they're mostly Republicans. 
Now, we can say that of any people group. We can say, well, they're subhuman. That's what justified the subjugation of the Jews. They said it long enough. The Jews are not humans. They're subhuman. And pretty soon, making someone subhuman makes it okay to stamp them out or to marginalize them or, or destroy their life or to confiscate their property. See, the approach of humanism will never produce a moral law of right and wrong. A husband will justify killing his wife if he can get away with it and collect life insurance. The drug lord will justify killing to protect his money or drugs. Major corporations will justify the death of innocent people at the hand of their product by placing an artificial dollar value on each life loss versus the financial cost to fix the problem. If we, if we reject our special place in the created order, we lose our moral imperative to preserve life. Very simply. Joy Davidman, who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, said this, and I quote, we only need to look at the results of evolutionary theory in the hearts and minds of men. Evolution has been the cesspool from which communism, humanism, existentialism, and even Nazism have emerged. It is an anti-God philosophy justified with ludicrous propositions cleverly disguised as science. No other philosophy vomited onto this planet has damned more souls than evolution. No competitor from the pits of hell has half its artful deceit. The evolutionists have given the humanist movement its impetus, cheapening human life, making human beings just another animal of a higher evolutionary order. They've taken away man's created uniqueness and wonder why society has turned to killing as the answer to everything. Hitler thought it was the answer to the creation of the master race. To organized crime, it's the answer to intimidation and control for monetary gain. To humanists, murder is the answer to handicapped children, aging parents, and birth control for convenience and the comfort in life. It's the answer to the sexual revolution as we suction out the evidence and throw it into a dumpster somewhere. Or even worse, suction out the, the baby's life and use its body parts for cosmetic purposes or to heal the diseases of the living. Some will wait until a baby's partially born and then kill it. How did we get there? How did we get here? Murder is the taking of a human life by another human being. Now this is not intended to be a defense of creationism versus evolution, but I challenge all of you to do your research. Do your research. One cannot be a biblical Christian and accept the basic beliefs of the theory of evolution. Just flat out, you can't accept it. The whole of the Bible, the, the fall of man, the sin in the Garden of Eden, the need for a Savior, the coming of the Messiah, salvation from our sins through Jesus' death on the cross, all go back to the account of creation and the events in the Garden of Eden. Our value was placed at creation. How God created, how long is a creation day, or questions likely not in the Hebrew author's minds are complex issues. However, the origin of man as a unique creation by God is non-negotiable. Without the, these foundational truths, the rest of the Bible, including life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, would not be necessary. We might as well just all go home. There's no reason to even be here. So we've examined the foundation of this command and the role evolution played in its destruction. Now let's look at the next question. 
Interesting question. When, let us see, when is killing murder? When is killing murder? All murder is killing, but is all killing murder? Remember the command, you shall not murder. The Hebrew language has seven words for killing, and the word used here is rasah. Rasah. Walter Kaiser writes, if any one of the seven words could signify murder, where the factors of premeditation and intentionality are present, this is the verb, rasah. The Bible clearly distinguishes between planned, premeditated, intentional, deliberate killing and accidental, unplanned, unintentional killing. Not only the harm done, but the harm intended. Our laws in America today differentiate between first-degree murder, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. Where does that come from? It comes from the law. It comes from the Bible. This commandment is not a prohibition against all killing, only unauthorized killing. And we'll, we'll get into that, what I'm talking about. When is killing murder? Exodus 21, 12 to 14 reads, anyone who strikes a man and kills himself shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place I will designate. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. So killing is murder, number one, when it is premeditated, intentional, or planned. Premeditated, intentional, and planned. This is the most common and once determined, the, the most horrendous. Number two, spontaneous, unplanned, but still intentional. This would refer to killing in an emotional rage or outburst. Number three is unintentional. In 2113, it says if it, if it happened unintentionally, they can go to a city and find a city of refuge. There were cities of refuge that were set up. If that happened, it was, it was proven that this person it killed unintentionally, they were supposed to be at that city till the death of the high priest. They were restricted to that city. Unintentional. Um, that's comparable to manslaughter today. Manslaughter. God established these cities of refuge to do this. Now, an example of, of this kind of thing would be a drunk driver who kills somebody unintentionally while driving. Though it's not intentional, it is still murder. It's still the taking of a life. The person is still guilty, but usually given a reduced sentence. Then there's number four, accessory to murder. It refers to helping someone commit murder, even though not actually committing the crime. The person is still guilty. King David was guilty of this crime in the death of Uriah. When is killing murder? Number five, acts of omission. Acts of omission. This can include not warning that tobacco can kill with cancer. Tobacco companies concealed this fact for many years and were found liable. That was, a, that was an act of murder by omission. Make no mistake about it. Another company was found at fault by knowingly selling unsafe baby car seats or flammable clothing for infants or refusing to recall a car for a safety problem that resulted in injury or death. We see those kinds of things all the time. Omission. These are, this is killing somebody by omission. Kyle and Delish write, not only is the accomplished fact of murder condemned, whether it proceed from open violence or stratagem, but every act that endangers human life, whether it arises from carelessness or wantonness or from hatred, anger, and revenge. 
They go on to say life is placed at the head of these commandments, not as being the highest earthly possession because it is the basis of human existence. And in the life, the personality is attacked, and in that, the image of God. Carelessness is given uh, in Deuteronomy 28. It's given, it says, when you build a house, make a parapet around your roofs that you may not bring bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. So in other words, if you, if you have a place that's dangerous in the house, they said that people would go up in the roof if you didn't have a parapet, some way to protect somebody. If they fell off, that was, that was murder by carelessness, omission, carelessness. So when is killing not murder? When is killing not murder? Number one, it does not apply to animals. It does not apply to animals. Genesis 9.3, God said, Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Now, we are to be good stewards of God's creation, including animals. The Bible admonishes us to treat animals humanely. However, animals and plant life were placed on earth for mankind's benefit, enjoyment, and survival. A vegetarian may say, I don't eat meat because it was once alive. Well, so was the broccoli and lettuce in your mouth that you have. To see if your philosophy works, then just take it to its ultimate conclusion. If we can't eat anything that was ever alive, we will all starve and mankind will cease to exist. Just, just saying, okay, just saying that. If we grant plants and animals the same rights as human beings, ultimately, we will starve to death ourselves, and I just encourage people to use their God-given brains. Okay, just, just saying, okay. So when is killing not murder? It doesn't apply to animals. Number two, it is not murder when defending. Number two, when defending one's home from nighttime burglars. It's an interesting thing. Exodus 22, two through three says, if a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, he is guilty of bloodshed. What does that mean? That means that you have a, self, you have a right to self-defense of your home. It's very well, very well placed in the Bible. Evidently, if sunrise had come, that you could probably stop it before taking drastic action because you could see what was happening. They didn't have lights, they didn't have street lights, they didn't have night lights, they didn't have all that back then. If someone came in, you didn't know what to do, you're defending your home. And if that happened, it was a nighttime burglar. If it happened in the daytime, evidently, there was some way to deter the aggression. Number three, accidental killings, accidental killings. In Deuteronomy 19, it talks about a man chopping down a tree and the ax head flies off and hits another man and kills him. He said, that's an accidental death. That's, a, that's something that, that um, you're not considered guilty or you can live by fleeing to the city of refuge. When is killing not murder? Number four, capital punishment. Capital punishment, we're gonna talk about it in depth in just a moment. And number five, war. Two weeks from today, we'll be talking about that. Now, let's look at the first, we're in Roman numeral two now, the commandment as related to contemporary issues. First one is capital punishment. Capital punishment. Why should crime be punished? Capital punishment is defined as the execution of criminals convicted of certain crimes. It's an action taken by the government or the state. Now, for this next section, I owe a lot to a personal friend and attorney and law professor of considerable stature. Um, his name is Dr. John Eidsmo, a personal friend of mine, and he, he uh, had two lectures that he, and some of this material comes from uh, his lecture. And one of them is titled, A Biblical View of Crime and Punishment. God has delegated to human government the authority to punish crime. 
God has delegated that to human government. Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Okay, in other words, it's man's responsibility to do that. Now, Romans 13, 1 through 5 is a very instructive passage. I have it in your notes, and I want, I want to read the whole thing um, and, and go through that. Romans 13, 1 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will command you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscious. Now, we don't have time to exegete this entire passage, but suffice it to say that God has placed government and leaders in place of authorities to carry out justice. He's there to carry out justice. Now, the question always comes with, with capital punishment. Why did God institute capital punishment? Because human life is cheap? Is it because human life is cheap? No. It's because human life is so valuable that if you take another's life, the only way you can pay is by giving your own. That's the cost. A capital punishment states that human life is irreplaceable. Now why capital punishment? Number one, simple justice. Simple justice. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment to the wrong number, uh, wrongdoer. Crime must be punished for justice to occur. The second one is deterrence, number two, deterrence. One major purpose of capital punishment is to deter other criminals. When one knows the price to be paid, they may stop short of committing the crime. Manfred Brauck, in the Hard Sayings of Paul, wrote about this passage in Romans 13. He said this, and I, and I quote, What is God's intent? Bad works are restrained. The good is promoted and encouraged. He summarizes, Paul's argument is this. It is God's intent that human life in the context of community will be a life in harmony and peace and order. Since life in community becomes chaotic and anarchistic without the presence of regulatory laws which are enforced by authorities, the presence of these are part of God's overall intent for human existence. Therefore, insofar as the state and its rulers exercise their authority in keeping with God's intent, they act as God's ministers for the common good of society. And when we don't obey the laws or we fight against all that, no matter what, what they are, we create anarchy. Deterrence was practiced and mandated in Old Testament Israel. In fact, stoning was prescribed for certain sins with a statement, quote, then all Israel will hear and be afraid. In other words, then all Israel will hear and be afraid. The purpose of capital punishment, stoning in this instance, was deterrence, to deter that kind of behavior. The primary reason for capital punishment is to protect the lives and safety of innocent citizens. It's been said, he threatens the innocent who spares the guilty. God has granted civil authorities the right to judge, find innocent or guilty, and to punish the guilty and give retribution. Now, human nature is such that sometimes we just need deterrence. 
We need to know there are consequences of our behavior. We will not always do the right thing because we know right from wrong. Most of the time we need to know there are consequences of our action. There's a, there's a huge role for deterrence. I have a friend who, who grew up in South Africa and he tells a story of going on a fishing trip and they went to a neighboring country, it was a Muslim country, and they stopped to stay overnight and they got a hotel room. Well, the hotels weren't like they are here. It, the room was so small that they were gonna stand that they had, and they had these long bamboo fishing poles tied on top of the car, and they couldn't fit them in the room, okay? I know you got these fancy things that go fishing now, but these were long bamboo poles they were taking. They couldn't fit them in the room. So they went to the proprietor and said, is there a safe place to put our fishing poles um, overnight because we don't want them stolen? And the proprietor looked at them, kind of perplexed. He said, stolen? He said, that will never happen here. He said, it was a Muslim country. He said, if anybody gets caught stealing those, they'll have their hand chopped off. He said, nobody will risk their hand for a couple of fishing poles. That's deterrence, okay? I'm not saying that is what we should have, but that was an example of deterrence. Nobody was gonna steal anything. Now, the third reason for capital punishment is to prevent private vengeance, to prevent private vengeance. In, in, in American history, and this is kind of a history lesson, in American history, there were times and places where institutions had the authority to find somebody guilty or innocent of a crime, but they didn't have the authority to punish them, okay? So they, you could, they could be found guilty of a crime, but they didn't have the authority to punish them. And if a person was found guilty, they were declared outside the law, okay? Found guilty outside the law. That's where the term out law came from. So if you were found guilty and you didn't get punished, you were an outlaw. And then the friends and relatives of the victim could seek vengeance for the crime against their loved one. And of course, we hear about the Hatfields and McCoys. We find out all kinds of instances where families went and they tried to exact vengeance and revenge for the crime that was committed against their family. And they went against outlaws and it was legal to do that back then. It, it was crazy. When civil authorities have the right to find guilty and punish the guilty, it sets aside personal vengeance and brings true justice. Romans 12, 19 says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. We're not to avenge ourselves, okay? Someone does something wrong against us. God alone has the authority to avenge, but he has delegated that authority to human governments. Very dis important distinction between civil law, what authorities can and should do, and personal law, which is taking things into our own hands. And laws keep us from private vengeance or private revenge, very important. Now, I, I just made a list of about 12 things that, and we're not gonna go, I'll just read them very quickly. Oh, the Old Testament capital punishment was prescribed for the following crimes. Murder, striking and reviling a parent, Sabbath breaking, witchcraft, blasphemy, false prophecy, adultery, some forms of unchastity, rape, unnatural sex, which is sodomy, homosexuality, bestiality, kidnapping, and idolatry. Now, we don't have capital punishment for all those sins today, why? Believe me, we'd have a lot less crime, a lot more respect for parents, Family breakdown would disappear and everybody wouldn't be in church on Sunday. Just, just saying. Now remember, this was Old Testament law. Now, the question always comes up, didn't Jesus bring forgiveness? Aren't we supposed to forgive all crime and sins? Why should we still practice capital punishment? Because 
Genesis 9.6 says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. That's part of the covenant which applies to all people for all time. It's part of the covenant. All people, all time. So what about the church age, the New Testament times? Didn't, didn't Jesus pay the death penalty for all sin and for all time, even murder? Well, when we look at what Jesus taught, he did not contradict the law. He expanded it. God has delegated to civil government the authority to punish the criminal for the purpose of protecting society. And Romans 13 was written after the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember, so you have the covenant law happened before Romans 13 was written after the cross of Christ. A murderer can be forgiven his sin, but may still have to forfeit his life. By establishing capital punishment, John Eismore writes, society demonstrates its abhorrence of a particular crime. Now, many of us may react with the thought, I've never committed murder. I guess I'm pretty good. I don't have to worry about the Sixth Commandment. This next section is for you. Okay, just saying. Let's look at Roman numeral number three. Jesus' expansion and his clarification of the Sixth Commandment. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 to 22, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Ah, here again, Jesus brings this commandment, the prohibition of murder, the taking of human life from the outside, external, observable, physical action to the heart, the internal. He internalizes it to our hearts to include anger, hatred, or even thoughts of murder. See, Jesus never contradicted the Ten Commandments. He expanded them. So if you feel like killing, want to kill, wish he or she was dead, Jesus says ultimately, it's the same as the act. Like adultery, the thought, the desire entertained is just as bad in God's eyes as the act itself. Martin Luther said, if murder is forbidden, so is everything that leads to murder. It's a call to radical self-examination and literally should keep us from condemning those that have ended up committing this particular crime. Keep us from condemning others who have acted out the very thoughts that we've had and got caught. Now, let me clarify. Thinking about murder is not the same as murdering someone. Okay, just to make sure you know that. That's it. Genesis 9-6 does not say he who thinks about shedding blood by his life. No. What is Jesus is saying? What is he saying? Jesus is saying sin is sin. Actions. Thoughts are all the same before God who is righteous. He cannot look on sin. And remember, Jesus, when he is speaking this, he's talking to a group of religious people who are hiding their dirty, rotten hearts behind a facade of goodness. And we have our own facades today. We point at prisoners on death row, all the while we harbor hatred or prejudice or bitterness, almost internal murder against people who have wronged us, people we hate. Maybe it's people of another race, people of another skin color, people of another country, people we've been at war with, people for whom Jesus died. How do we handle that? And Jesus says we're just as guilty as the guy on death row because sin happens on the inside. 
on the inside. Let's talk about Lex Talionis. I know you're wondering who he is, but Lex Talionis. It's the eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. The law found in the Old Testament was the law of like punishment. It dictated punishment fits a crime. This did not prescribe punishment as, as such, but limited revenge. In other words, there's an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And Jesus did not overrule the principle, but explained it more fully. In Matthew 5, he said, You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. I tell you, do not resist an evil person if someone strikes you on the right cheek. Turn to him the other also. And this passage de- deals primarily with insults, not physical attacks. It also deals with personal relationships, not the civil governmental laws of civil justice. So just a real quick note on Lex Talionis, because people say eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. How does that work? What is the root cause of crime? What is the root cause of crime? It's our sinful nature, our sinful nature. The Bible, again, is our source for truth, is our authority, standard of faith and practice. The Bible says the root cause of all sin, including crime, is our fallen, sinful nature. I've got three passages of scripture here. I'll read them very quickly. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. James 4, 1 to 2, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Then our biggest indictment in Romans 3 says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Oh, Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are like, are all under sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. What do we blame crime for today? The environment. environment. Change the environment. It's the environment they were raised in. Or ignorance. It's a lack of education. We just need more education. One person said, educate a sinner, and all you get is a clever sinner. That's true. Maybe poverty. We're a prosperous nation. Still, crime happens in prosperous neighborhoods as well as impoverished neighborhoods. Firearms. We need gun control. This is a big issue out there now. And uh, many of you may remember, some of you aren't born yet, but Pat Robertson, who ran ran for president, was kind of a comedian, and he, and, he, and he said, we don't need gun control. He said, guns never hurt anybody. It's the bullets. Well, we all kind of smiled and said, well, that's, that's true. But see, it's not the guns. It's the people that wield the gun or the knife or the weapon or whatever. It's people. Well, let's look at God's forgiveness. We need to hear this. God's forgiveness. Number five. Since we all seem to have broken this commandment, if not in deed, then in thought... We all need the hope of forgiveness. Is there hope? 1 John 1, I love this passage. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins 
of the whole world. People disregard the Sixth Commandment, people misunderstand the Sixth Commandment, and people break the Sixth Commandment. Does Jesus forgive us if we break the Sixth Commandment? Absolutely. He forgives us. He forgives us. If we confess, repent, and turn from sin, we are then pure and righteous as if we had never sinned. Are there consequences? Yes. Is there punishment? Can be. But there's also eternal life to all who believe in Jesus and receive his free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. We read of many people in the Bible who broke the sixth commandment in reality, in the physical realm. Cain, the first murderer, King David, the Jewish leaders who had Jesus put to death, even the apostle Paul, who consented to the stoning of Stephen in imprisonment and execution of other Christians. And we will see David and Paul and many others in heaven because Jesus died to pay for all sin, even murder. All of our sin can be forgiven. And that's the good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give guidelines. These are some of the hard words that we see, but Father, we know that when we live in the context of this relational reality of your top 10, it's about relationship, that you bring harmony and order and you bring good things to all of us. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us clarity of thought as we approach these kinds of contemporary issues that are related to the, this commandment. And Father, that you would have us examine our hearts and say, do I hold anything against someone else? Am I in a position where I need to ask for forgiveness? And Father, those of us who point fingers at people who have committed this, obviously, I pray that you will speak to us and correct us in our judgmentalism. And Father, that you would again speak to those that have experienced this, or knowing that you forgive all of that. And it's your grace, your amazing grace, that brings that to fruition. And we thank you. Let's stand, shall we? Thank you, Pastor Damien. Um, at the end of the service, if you would like prayer, um, Kent and Hannah Peterson will be standing right over here, and uh, uh, you can share prayer requests with them. We don't want anybody to ever leave without having their prayer needs prayed for, and so uh, feel free to, to do that. Let's stand for the benediction, shall we? May the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship and power of the Holy Spirit be and abide with all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed.